Chapter Twenty Four. There was no reason to be so afraid. The fear was intuitive rather than rational, so I tried to control it. As I crept out of the tent, I heard retreating steps, then the snap of a branch. It must have been a large animal. I made myself think, at home in the forest at night. The trees around the clearing appeared closer, as if they'd moved. But that was ridiculous, and I dismissed it at once. I looked up, astonished at how many stars shone in the stillness. It was a metaphysical splurge that did nothing to assuage my anxiety. I forced myself to look at the stars carefully. The still setting made it seem worse. My heart began to race, and a cramp rose in my stomach, causing me to clutch at my midriff. Jamie had built a fire. The embers smouldered as I crept into the open, trying to get my bearings. He was near enough to the fire for the top of his head to catch its flickering. He'd covered himself in blankets and sat stooped over as I approached. I went to tap him on the shoulder. Before I could touch him, he fell sideways, throwing the blankets off his back. He rolled onto his stomach, hands extended, gripping what looked like a pistol. I raised my arms to show I had no intention of hurting him. My instinct was to talk. I asked how long I'd been asleep. He didn't answer. His regard of me was so rigid I thought he might actually shoot, and my churning stomach continued to give me serious discomfort. I cringed, trying to keep my focus on the weapon he suddenly had. There was no way of telling if it was a toy or a convincing replica. Hands still raised. I lowered myself more or less to his level, sitting cross-legged on the grass, two meters away. It was a relief to be able to sit. I took a deep breath and let the air out slowly and evenly. I wanted to show Jamie I was willing to be calm, no matter what was happening between us. What have you got there? I asked. What does it look like? He said. I shook my head. It looks convincing. I said. Jamie nodded. He was all-knowing. He kept the nod up. Some doubt in his mind now confirmed, perpetuating the nod. He smiled as he got to his knees. He was still aiming the gun at my chest. By this time, I was pretty sure it was real. Jamie said, "You're one of them, aren't you?" I didn't know what he was talking about. He started shaking his head until he'd formed a disgusted scowl across his young face. "Is this yours?" He held the gun up higher so I could look down the long matte barrel and reflect. Weirdly, I thought I could remember something about it. I thought I could recall seeing one like it somewhere, maybe even handling it. As I struggled to order this cluster of memories, it must have shown in my face that I was confused. "You don't fool me," Jamie said. I closed my eyes. "How did you come by it?" I asked. He kept the gun pointed at me. I found it," he said. There was a new swagger in his voice that didn't suit him. He was trying to sound manly, but confounding his silly game with what was turning out to be a very serious turn of events. I admit this got under my skin. Listen," I said. "We have to stop playing games." That upset him. I immediately regretted it. "I'm not playing a game," he threatened. "You think I'm playing? You think this is playing?" He was on his knees now, extending his arms so far I thought I could smell gun oil. My calm, only ever a pretense, dropped away, and I shook uncontrollably.
There was one question left, and I asked it. Where's your family, Jamie? His jaw went slack. He seemed dismayed. How should I know? My stomach relaxed slightly. I moistened my lips. I knew I'd hit on something. Did they go away? Jamie squeezed his eyes together. Do you want to talk about it? I asked. With each new question, the gun was lowered some more. All I had to do was keep asking the right questions. Are you living with your mother and sister now? Mum wants us all to be lovey happy, he said. But you don't want to. How can we ever be? I discovered Jamie was desperate to talk. His tears made it possible for him to diffuse some of the anger blocking his way. They took my dad, he said, his keen eyes magnified in those tears as he tried to explain what had happened. Why? Mum doesn't think I know, but I do. He raised his voice. She thinks she can keep it from me, but I know what's happened. He was almost shouting, but also imploring me, the way he pushed his face forward with each new piece of information. Where do you live? I asked. He looked down, turning the gun over in his hands, studying it, as if for the first time. I asked if he'd run away from home. It's not a home, he said. It's a holiday place, but Mum wants us to live there because we've been through so much. Whereabouts exactly? She thinks it's so nice being in the country, he said. He fiddled with his shoelace with his free hand, still idly pointing the gun in my direction. Mum's been through just as much as we have, but she pretends she hasn't, he said. What about your sister? She's a cow. He looked around at the fire he'd built and clicked his tongue. He lay the gun on the ground. Anya's always having a go, he said. She likes to think she's in charge. He looked up at me as he prodded the fire with a stick. I smiled gratefully. Having a conversation, being with company, even with this afflicted boy, reinforced my sense of belonging to a specific time and culture. I could feel what was barbaric in me receding as Jamie explained his circumstances. I was concerned for him. After all, Jamie had saved my life. Talking to him now, I understood something about the civilized world I came from and wanted to go back to. Jamie, where do you think your mother and sister are? His answer was a look of fear and confusion. How far do you think the nearest town is? His eyes snapped to my face. You haven't remembered your name yet, have you? He asked. I shook my head. You're here, he said. I didn't know what he meant by that, but I was close enough to him now to lift the gun off the ground. Why I should have known anything about it, the weight of it or the feel of it, was a mystery to me. I looked at Jamie. It felt crazy, but I said, do you really think there's someone bad in the woods? He nodded. Chapter 25 Barry was storming again. He didn't know what town he was in. Wherever he went, there was always some farcical rush along the streets, people out of their minds with ambition. It was the middle of a mild afternoon, but it was a wild, wet night with thunder and lightning, and plenty of desperation in Barry's cries. His voice sounded pitiful in the storming night he was having. He needed a break, 
but he didn't know which way to go. By then he was calling himself Alice. People around and about who had got used to the sight of him called him that too, and labeled him as pure crackers, stay well away. They didn't know why. They didn't care why, apart from one stranger who made it his business to find out what was going on inside the Barmy American. This stranger would come along and ask futile questions. He had wiry hair sticking up so uniformly it was as if his hair really was made of wire and somebody had been holding a magnet over his head. His name was Charles Dickens, but Alice was invited to call him Chaz. He had bags under his eyes and a bulging lower lip and ragged clothes, like all Barry's friends and acquaintances during those long, squally days. In his late forties, early fifties, Chaz was a man of the road too, and would have babbled forever but for his lower lip, which flopped all over and got in the way. Barry mentioned he needed a break, maybe get away to the countryside. He was still in the furies when the man called Chaz came to sit with him again on a bench. He'd met bag people and others, drug and booze people, all kinds of sickies who ended up near the railway stations or in bedsits if they could pay, but were mostly huddled into blankets and cardboard boxes on the steps of empty buildings and church porticos. Barry knew they couldn't tell him anything useful, but Chazard Dickens turned out to be different. He was a philosopher, and if you got him at the right moment, he could say something illuminating. It had to be the right moment, though, Otherwise, this Chazer would ask futile questions and get in too deep, and the strand would be lost. Hey, Alice, you know what? You sound American. Barry nodded. He did sound American. So what are you going to do when you get to the countryside? These were the kinds of questions that bothered Barry. He wanted answers, not questions. He puffed his cheeks out and shook his head. It's always colder out of town, Chaz explained. There's no proper food and there's too much grass. I've got a storm in my head. Is that so? It's because I'm sitting here on this bench. What kind of storm is it? It's a hurricane. Is that why you're called Alice? Barry said that it was. Hurricane Alice, right between the eyes, and every shelter he hid under got tossed up or blown away. It tickled Chazer Pink to hear about it. When he opened his mouth to laugh, his big blue lips sank low, and Barry could see his yellow teeth and bleeding gums. It made the trees in Barry's mind bend over, the ocean whipping white foam waves over the seafront, and people's ordinary things hurling through the air. When Chaz finished laughing, he told Barry that if he got up and followed the sun as it set, he would be deep in the countryside by nightfall. So Barry left Alice sitting on a bench in Exeter. He kept the sun on his face, and the next day he let it rise up his back, over the top of his head, and down onto his face again. He walked upwards, and was always walking upwards. He discovered he was an animal in need of food and shelter. When he arrived in the woods, deep in the thick woods, he made a nest out of heavy branches and a bed of leaves, and went to the human places by day to scavenge among their things. He saw himself in their windows. It wasn't really him. He didn't know who it was, but it went wherever he went. He saw it reflected in the windows of parked cars. Sometimes he would bend over and take a closer look in the wing mirrors. 
It was always a stranger there, with a long dark beard and wild knotted hair and flared nostrils and gleaming eyes that Barry thought he might recognize. The humans told him to clear off, and their kids liked to beat him up, so he learned to move around by night. By day, when it was warmer and sleep came more comfortably, he would rest in the woods. It was through life outdoors, the long periods of silence and inactivity, washing in streams and the heavier showers, climbing the hills to watch for changes in the weather, or shitting with other smaller animals in sheltered places, that Barry came to know this stranger better and felt more at ease living with him. He allowed the stranger to make decisions about what they should do next and how they should get their next meal. It worked wonders. The hurricane eventually eased, leaving just a breeze with a vicious smell in it. Soon, all that was left of Barry was a simple story that must have been handed down from the previous occupant. He recounted this story often. He told himself about the man called Barry Heller, who came from far away, overseas, and worked high up in the banking sector. He told how this Barry had been married to an English rose, and described the beautiful children they had, a boy and a girl, and the big town house they lived in, and how for many years everything seemed like a gift until disaster struck, and poor old Barry Heller suddenly vanished. Nobody could explain it. He was simply gone. Only this total stranger wandering under the stars, to the back of pubs and supermarkets where scraps were thrown out, knew where this Barry might be hiding, and he wasn't saying. Some trace of the old times were still present, if only through the story Barry was telling himself. There were some parts he liked so much he told them obsessively. He couldn't get enough of the great escape. The time Barry Heller sneaked away from the hospital, wearing clothes he'd stolen from a locker and how he'd pretended to be someone entirely different with their driving license and the wedge of cash he found in their wallet. That was funny. And how once he was free again, he'd resolved to retrieve everything that had been lost. He loved to tell that one, as if this lost spirit would reappear again one day and be with his family again as suddenly and as magically as he'd left them. The total stranger knew this was crazy thinking. As far as he was concerned, it was the kind of thinking that was best left alone. The whole idea was to ignore all that had gone before and press on with the tremendous flow of existence. It might have happened that way. In time, the story of Barry Heller might have been forgotten. Had Barry not been so stubborn in the first place about finding his family, he might have completely disintegrated along with everything else in his life. It had taken weeks of madness and perilous journeying, and he hardly knew himself any more. But the wind in Barry's mind had blown him westwards, across five counties, onto the streets of Exeter for a time, and then further west, onto Dartmoor. He was a total stranger there, picking berries to eat, stealing what he could, and humans were creatures to be feared. But some bug in his brain finally steered him towards the village he used to take his holidays in and that's where he spotted the tight-lipped girl who had once been his daughter. He wanted to shout to her. He wanted to sob, because right away his heart split in two and flooded the ground with the clutter of his life. It was astonishing to see it all there in front of him. Nothing had been forgotten or left out, 
and even this total stranger was so overwhelmed, he stood and waved. It took Anya by surprise, but no more than that. She was walking down the hill, unimpressed by the pink flush in the sky that evening, or the first warmth of spring in the air. She'd left her coat on a hook at school. Her backpack was so full of homework her shoulders ached, but she could already see the spire of the church and would soon be home eating supper. Something was wrong, but something was always wrong. As she walked, Anya ignored the feeling. It persisted and gave her goose pimples. She didn't know what made her look in exactly the right direction. But there, across the dead gorse, emerging from behind some bushes, she saw a disgusting flasher doing his business. He was the worst kind, filthy and aggressive, with his hands in the air. His shirt was so far undone his chest was bare, and Anya could see it was streaked with muck. His flies were open. The creep was standing there in his soiled trousers and undone shirt, groping the air with his hands, making lewd gestures. Anya shouted at him to fuck off, thinking this place was so teeming with creeps, London was much safer. The total stranger lost it then. He lost it and ran into the trees, shrieking and wailing. He ran so far and so fast he left behind no trace of the old Barry Heller. It was horribly sad, but as far as he was concerned, it was the last anyone would ever see of Barry. As the flasher disappeared, Anya gazed in triumph, with a new and strange thought relaxing the set of her jaw. <laughs>